Okay, Psalm 14. Uh, if you've got a Bible, that's great. Uh, I'm going to read out of the NIV translation. Um, it's also going to be up here on the screen. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come up out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So um, maybe you've noticed this over the last few years, but, but especially over the last decade, there's actually been a, a, a new form of, of atheism that's become a lot more prominent in the public square. And in a way, um, atheism, the belief that there isn't a God, a skepticism that there's a God that exists in the universe is, is not new. It's been around for a long time. There have been skeptical voices speaking out for, for quite some time. Uh, long before, any, in, before I was born, there was a man named Bertrand Russell who wrote a very famous book called Why I Am Not a Christian. But something has changed recently in, 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 in the public in, in the public discussion of this. And, uh, and there's been lots of changes that have happened in our world and our nation over the last 10 years. But, uh, but, but one of the things that's happened is that there have been more voices that have been skeptical, and they've been more than, than skeptical. The tone has changed. They have become hostile to Christians, to, to religious faith. They're not just atheists. They're almost anti-theist. They don't like religion. They don't like what it's hap what's happened from religion in our world, and they are taking every chance that they have to speak out against it. There's a lot of people that have tracked this and uh, and and some folks think that that it kind of the, th the the tone shifted in 2004 uh, when a guy named Sam Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith. Uh, this was a book that kind of pitted uh, Christianity, religious faith, against really reason and logic and science. I think actually kind of incorrectly he pits one one against another. But, but he did this, and then the call at the end of the book was actually for the end of religion in, in our nation and, and really in our world. Uh, and, and, and what was amazing about it is it wasn't just the end of religion in extremist form, not, not the big scary uh, things that sometimes get the headlines in the news, but even moderate forms of faith, like, like what happens here on a Sunday morning. This fella, Sam Harris, wanted to see it all come to an end. And after this book was written, suddenly there was like this new wave of strong, militant voices in their own words that wanted to end religion. These were people who, who really hated Christian faith. 
Uh, and, and I'm not using that word as hyperbole. They, they hated it. They wanted to get rid of it. They worked tirelessly to debunk what they saw was a myth that was hurting the world. And when I first read this psalm, Psalm 14, the people that say out loud, there is no God, that say there is no God, these are the first folks that, that came to mind. You may know some of their names. They're Sam Harris, they're Richard Dawkins, they're Lawrence Krauss, they're Daniel Dennett, they're the late Christopher Hitchens. Uh, th these are actually, those guys are known as the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. And, uh, and, and their, their, their voices are out there saying there is no God. And the thing that's been really challenging, I think, is that, you know, in the psalm it says, the fool says there is no God. These guys are not fools. They are really, really smart. They hold some of the most prestigious academic chairs at some of our highest institutions and universities. They go and do TED Talks. They uh, go late night with Bill Mayer. They do really interesting interviews with Stephen Colbert. Um, these are guys that are trying to end religion in, in, in the world. And, and, and let me say, um, just do a quick plug here. Uh, I talked about Homegrown starting next week. Let me jump ahead to January. We're going to actually do a series here on Sunday morning, five weeks, that we're going to call The Logic of Faith in January. And I am going to speak to some of the criticisms that these guys are leveling at Christian faith. I'm going to deal with some really tough challenges that they bring. And, and I really have two intentions in that. One, um, I, I want it to be known that Christianity really does have intellectual integrity like there really is good thought coherent logical positions that christian faith holds and, and honestly if you flip some of the same criticisms back on those who bring them a lot of the other positions don't have the same logical coherency and and i want you to see that i want you to know that that there's real firepower that we don't need to be scared that we can answer some of those questions and this is the other reason i want to do this i want to equip you guys because these are these are conversations that are happening in the public square I know because Richard Dawkins is so loud that some of you know his name, that you have seen him on the History Channel, that, that there are people in your worlds that are wondering about some of these voices that, that they're hearing. And so uh, I, I want you to be able to actually engage in those conversations. And, and I want to recognize something, something here as well. Um, there, there's another kind of atheism, another kind of, uh, you, you really might even call it agnosticism, that's a lot more common than what these militant atheists are doing. And these are people who may not have a belief, a stated belief in God, uh, and, and have some questions, but they're not angry. In fact, a lot of their atheism comes out of protests that we would align with because they see things in the world that are not as they ought to be, that are not good, and, and they have questions about it. They've just had skepticism uh, because they're, they're not sure. And a lot of times, uh, these people have run into um, caric uh, caricatures of Christianity in the media, that make uh, Christianity look like it's totally judgmental and 100% intolerant. A lot of times, um, they've never even really had a conversation with a person who truly is following Jesus and, is, and has done a lot of the thinking that, that, that helps us wrestle and answer some of these questions. And, um, and, and, and these people are in your world. I, I know they are. 
I, I know that you can probably think of some of their names. Like, these are your coworkers. These are probably some of your really close friends. These are probably people in your family. And they're not angry. They're different. They just have real honest questions that come from a good place. And we need to be able to, 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 to speak to that, to have those conversations, to share how beautiful and wonderful and thoughtful the Christian faith that we hold really, really is. Okay, but, but Psalm 14 is actually about another kind of atheism. And this is what Eugene Peterson helped me see in such a clear way. And, uh, and, and I actually think it's the worst kind of atheism. Let, let, let me point out something to you. Psalm 14.1, the fool says, in his heart, there is no God. So I want you to notice, where does this person say there is no God? They're not doing a TED Talk. They're not writing books about it. They say it in their heart. This is a different kind of atheism. This is a person who may not speak negatively about God at all out loud, especially if it's not beneficial to them. They, they, this is a belief at the core of who they are in their heart. They, they don't believe there's a God. These are heart atheists. And this is so key to understanding what's going on in this passage because when atheism is an atheism in the heart, what it means is the most sovereign being in that person's world is themselves, right? If God or something higher authority is not there in a person's heart, it's me who's at the center of my world. I'm accountable to myself. I'm the sovereign of my life, and therefore I sovereignly will work to arrange everything to my advantage around me, right? That's the kind of atheism that this passage is talking about. And have you, ever, have you ever seen this kind of atheism? The things that come to mind? I think sometimes it's harder to spot because a lot of times it's quiet. It's, it's unobtrusive. It, uh, arguing about whether or not God exists is oftentimes too much work for this kind of atheism. Sometimes we have to step back and look to see it. And if I'm going to be honest with you all, where I think we would see it most prevalently, if we step back uh, here in the southern United States in the Bible Belt, is actually hiding behind Christian faith. I think this kind of atheism, because it's advantageous, will masquerade as Christian faith when in reality it's a whitewashed tomb. Because it's beneficial to say still you're a Christian uh, here in, in, in the southern United States. And so these atheists will show up at church. They'll say the Lord's Prayer. They'll take communion. They would uh, shake hands with people, especially on the big Sundays where they need to be seen, especially with the people who they need to be seen with. And, uh, and, and let's be clear, they're not saying and identifying as Christians because they are trusting in the grace of God. They love the good work of our Lord in their lives. They're not here for the same reasons that you and I are. They're here because of themselves. There's a fellow who has been looking at, at, at this and observed, and he said, their creed is that there is no God and that it's wise to pray to him from time to time. I don't know if you've seen this show, 
and it is well beyond PG-13, so maybe you haven't, but um, House of Cards, Francis Underwood is the man who comes to mind when I think about this kind of atheism. Why am I spending so much time characterizing it? Well, one, because this Bible that guides our life uh, talks about it. This is what Psalm 14 is, is about. This is clearly something that God wanted us to know about. And uh, number two, because it's real. Because there are Francis Underwoods out there in the world. And, uh, and, I, and, and I think we need to not be naive. And Jesus wanted us not to be foolish about this. Uh, I, I think back here to a scripture, Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He has gathered them up. He's giving them instructions and about to send them out into the world to talk about the good news that, that was happening through Jesus. And right before he says this to them, he says, uh, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You're going to be a sheep, and I'm sending you out among wolves, <laughs> right? That's not exactly the analogy you want to hear if you're about to be sent out on a mission somewhere by Jesus, right? If you're a sheep, I can't think of anything I would less rather be around than wolves, right? Because have you, have you seen what wolves do to their prey, right? Has anybody watched one of those nature shows where wolves will uh, take an animal, the pack hunts a group down, they isolate one, and then the whole pack will descend on one animal and rip it apart. I was watching, I think it was Planet Earth with my young sons, and uh, the wolves did this, and it was so violent, I had to turn the TV off, right? But, but this is the reality that Jesus is calling to mind. There, there, there's a reality here that he wants us to see. Wolves rip sheep apart. Jesus is telling a hard truth. There are people out there who his intent is to harm, and you must be careful because they don't care about what you care about, but if it will be advantageous to them, they'll pretend that they do. And, and, and we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Otherwise, you'll be li Little Red Riding Hood, and you'll find the wolf at Grandma's house. That's what he's saying. And, and, and I think that David knew this. I think that's why he wrote this psalm. King David was the author of Psalm 14, and because of what we know about his life, we know that David had a lot of really terrible things going on. There were wolves on the edges of his life pretty much the whole time, and, and so he had experienced pain at their hands, and this psalm is probably a reflection on some of his experiences with heart atheism, with people who, who, who put themselves on their own thrones and wanted to only put themselves forward, didn't care about the things of God, and drew blood from his life. And so if, if you continue on here, what David will then go on to do, and we'll look at in a minute, is he'll describe some of the ways that you can, you can identify hard atheism in the world, that you can see it. But before he does that, and this is, this is really important, he offers us a caution. He looks introspectively. Verses 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
So this is the next thought that David has, and that's a strong statement, isn't it? It uses these big, all-encompassing words uh, that very intentionally are trying to, to, to draw a line around all of humanity. And, um, and when he says, are there any who seek God, are there any who are good, is kind of the question he's asking. I think he actually means the answer is no in a way. Partially saying, no, we are all broken. Just like the kids, how many have broken a rule, right? Every single one raised their hands, right? And, 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 and I think that's important. That, that's a reality that is um, one of the truths taught in the Bible. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, will pick up probably this psalm later on and write to everyone and say, in his description of what's going on in the world, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This, this is a truth, and I think that David is sharing this in his reflection about heart atheism because he wants to offer us this caution to know that, that this is a, a, a precipice that we all stand on, that it's very easy for us to become the very center of our worlds, to put ourselves in the center of everybody's world, and, and, and to know that this sin problem is a sickness that's in all of our hearts. And, and, and David, of all people, is very familiar with this, right? That's part of his story that in a moment where he put himself first, wasn't thinking about the things of God, he looked on a rooftop and saw a woman bathing and then committed adultery and killed her husband, right? D David knows that, that this is something that all of us can, can happen, that we're not beyond this. So, so have caution here. I, I think it's so important that, that we not read a psalm like this that's real and raw and honest, but, but then go slip into judgmentalism or think that we're somehow we're somehow better that that's holier than thou behavior and 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 don't take don't be a hammer looking for a nail reading a psalm like this and then go on Facebook and do a diatribe about how terrible some people are right that that's not the intent and that's what what David draws us back here but I but it, I think it's also saying don't be naive and that's the thrust of what Jesus is saying. This is about heart atheism. And don't think that this doesn't exist. And don't be foolish in our approach to it. And, and, uh, and, and the reason I know that this is where he goes, because he narrows it back down in verse 4 to then talk about uh, evildoers. That's the word that he uses. And he says, this is how you can see them. Verse 4, will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread. So here's David describing heart atheism, and he offers us a picture, a, a way to see it working out in the world as men eat bread, so they devour my people. Men are not bread, right? We are all created in the image of God, and when heart atheism takes the throne, one of the things that happens is that people are treated as less than people right? They become a commodity to be consumed. They, they are less than what they truly are in God's eyes. They're a means to an end. And so if you want to spot heart atheism, look at how it treats other people. And I'm not talking about like a stress behavior that a person has, you know, a short word here and there at, at a time. I'm talking about the arc of their life, you know, what is, what is the position of their heart towards Others, is it kind? Is it warm? Is it honest? D does it think about things beyond the self? If there's that true care there, right, that's a different thing. But if it's absent, 
if others are consistently treated as a means to an end, you know that's hard atheism. And, and in verse 6, David actually will narrow this down and, and identify the place where actually I think this is seen most clearly in our world when, when hard atheism rules. Verse 6, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. Frustrate the plans of the poor. When, when hard atheism rules, you know who suffers the most? It's the poor. It's, it's the poor in our world. The rich become rich, and the poor become consumed like bread. Evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor because they lose their voice. They, they don't have power already, but there's no concern about, about the pain and the suffering in their lives. And, 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 and what happens when a, a person puts themselves up as the most important thing there's no concern for what happens in their life. And just like happened in the Soviet Union with Stalin, it rips through the poor in the worst kinds of ways. Check the history books on that. And, and, and then it hides behind Christianity. Check the history books on that too. Right? But, but, but I, 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 again, I want to hold this tension <laughs> b- because um, I think that in our world today, uh, and in our secular world, which is is a world which tries to separate this this boundary between religious faith and the way that our our, our nation runs itself, that that there's a a um, a way that we can slip into this very easily, and, and in a lot of ways have, like we we've we've missed uh, some of the truths of the Christian gospel that really make us honor and care for one another. And, and I can prove it to you because this is the lie that has become so prevalent in our, our world today. And it goes like this. My beliefs are only my beliefs. That's my business. What I do in the secrecy of mine own heart is no account to anyone else. What is right is right for me. Right? Have you heard people say that before? There's some, there's some good to that, I think. But can you also hear where heart atheism would say the same thing? Do you see the danger in, in that kind of approach t- to the world? Uh, I think heart atheism is one of the clearest reasons this cannot be true. Because if I'm the most important thing in my world and my beliefs are only my own, again, I'm the sovereign and I'm going to arrange the world so that I get what I want. I am going to pursue my appetites greater than anything else. I'm going to make sure my needs are net. I'm going to even seek after my own fantasies. And in doing so, I will be a cancer to society and to others, especially the poor. They're going to get stepped on. I will frustrate their lives. That's such an evocative word that David uses to talk about what happens with the poor. They're frustrated. And, uh, and I just won't have any regard for others. G.K. Testerton, wonderful British writer, once wrote um, such an interesting reflection. He said, if, if I was a landlord, the one thing that I would want to m- know most about my tenants was not their income, not their employment, but what they believed. <laughs> if, if there was any way that I could find it out. Because I think what Chesterton knew was that it's it's not so much you know, whether or not we have money that's going to enable us to pay the rent. But it, it, it's even more than that when there's this agreement of trust in society. 
Uh, I can check a box on a census and identify as some sort of religion. I can say that my family is Christian, right? But it's the beliefs that truly guide my life that are going to determine how I interact with others and how I, I actually treat your apartment and you. <laughs> and I think Chesterton is, is, is right, right? I, I, I think that there are some beliefs that affect everyone, and there are some beliefs that are so terrible they're not okay, right? And, um, you know, it's kind of incredible. Uh, I, I told you, I started writing this three weeks ago, and uh, this last week was nuts in, in our world, was it not? I mean, the things in Charlottesville had not happened yet. Barcelona had not happened that yet. We watched those events with Shannon's brother-in-law and sister-in-law who live in Barcelona, right, who, who live miles from what happened. And, um, and I wrote the core of this before any of this happened. And I was like, God, really this week, <laughs> you're going gonna to make that happen? Because it's hard to read this psalm and think about what this scripture is talking about and not think about some of the things that we've seen this last week. And, and, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in some of the images that I saw um, about what was happening in Charlottesville, there were, there were people protesting um, who were holding up signs with Bible verses on them. I, I'm talking about the white supremacist group. They were holding up signs with Bible verses, and, and they were chanting blood and soil and referencing, which is an old Nazi chant. This is something from Nazi Germany. And, and, and they were holding up signs with Bible verses. And I don't want to be unclear here. There's nothing in the Bible that supports the ideological positions of white supremacy. Certainly not the dead chance of the Nazi Third Reich. And you, you can cherry pick all the verses you want from Scripture, but you're taking them out of context and you're running against the, the, the thrust and the promises and the truth that's in Jesus. Because the truth of Jesus is that the, the church stands up against all forms of evil, including racism, and it works to heal our hating hearts. And, and the gospel message is one that transcends the boundaries of blood and soil, right? That's part of the whole story. It's that Jesus was risen and the church goes out into all the world to, to, to let us know that there isn't just one people, that it's for all people at all times and all places. That's the commitment that, that, that the partners made. Do you join God's church that Jesus has opened up for all people of all times and in all places? And, and so... The only way that you can hold up a sign with a Bible verse on it and have that kind of hate going on in your heart is, is to not let Jesus be the one ruling your life, to not know Jesus as Lord. And that's exactly the next thing that David calls out in, in, in this passage when, when he says, this is what hard atheism looks like. Will evildoers never learn who do not call on the name of the Lord? So Calling on the name of the Lord, this is a phrase that you hear in the Bible regularly. And, um, and I bet intuitively, contextually, you've been able to kind of, uh, kind of figure out what it means. Like we call on God's name when we need help, when there, there needs to be something that I need help with. Lord, would you come save me? And that's there. That's part of it. But in the ancient world, lordship was like a, a concept, a cultural concept that was very real and very known. And lords ruled over kingdoms. They had serfdoms. They had people that they cared for. There was authority and power associated it. And when somebody was your lord, 
they ruled your kingdom, and there was a reciprocity there in the good relationship. You said, you said, this person is my Lord, and then they come to help you, but you live under their authority, right? And, and so when you call on the name of the Lord, you're saying, Lord, help me because of your authority and your power and your kingdom. And so here in, in, in the scripture, David's saying, these people will never learn. They're foolish because they don't know who the real Lord is. They don't call on his name. They don't see his kingdom, and they don't know. Here's the, the thing that God's already won. That's what's so foolish about this. God is already won, and I love where this psalm ends. Verse 5, there they are, overwhelmed with dread. It's talking about the heart atheists. The, the, they are shuddering. They're scared because God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And what I want to say here, and just make so clear, what David finishes off the psalm with is that, look, heart atheism, heart atheism does not win. It doesn't win. It, it exists. It may wreak havoc. It will show us its self-centeredness in some of the ugliest ways that none of us are beyond, right? But that doesn't win because when the righteous who are redeemed by God get together and we stand up, heart atheism is overwhelmed with dread. That's the scripture that it uses. It gets a glimpse of its ultimate defeat. God is the refuge of the poor who are frustrated by the works of heart atheism. Oh, that salvation would come up from Israel. The last verse, you know what's so beautiful about that? It's, it's a prophetic psalm. It's a, it's a messianic verse in the scripture that says God's redemption is going to come. Salvation is going to happen out of Israel. And it's a reference to Jesus. We know how this ends. This looks ahead to the cross of Jesus, which is where all of this comes to a head, right? Evil and hatred and destruction puts the Savior of the world on a cross. <laughs> but <laughs> Jesus leaves that cross behind and leaves the grave behind and gets the victory. Jesus wins. Love wins. Like I, it's just such uh, an incredible truth. It's the heart of the gospel. And maybe we needed to hear that, especially this week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your incredible word, which uh, goes ahead of us, which has helped us to understand things that, that are big. Lord, which speaks to our hearts, which offers us hope, which lets us know that whatever is craziness is happening, Lord, that, that ultimately you have overcome it and defeated it. Lord, and we just pray that we who trust in you would not get haughty or judgmental, but wise in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that is truly our one and only hope. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus.